Hello, my name is Shelley Shanfield, and I am a member of the League of Women Voters of Washtenaw County. We would like to welcome you to our series of programs focusing on criminal justice reform. To begin, a bit about us. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan voter education organization encouraging informed, active participation in government. We believe that voting is a fundamental citizen right that must be guaranteed. While the League does not support candidates or parties, we do take positions on issues we have studied. Our programs will not necessarily represent these positions, but provide forms to increase understanding of public policy issues. Welcome to the second Lunch and Learn presentation in our Criminal Justice Reform Series, Police, Justice, and Community. Last month, we heard about policing the police. Today, we're widening our scope to the study of this institution. To quote Alex S. Vitale in his 2017 New Inquiry Journal article, The Myth of Liberal Policing, Reformers have focused on improving the professionalism of police in an effort to reduce bias and unlawful behavior, rather than question, questioning the justness of what police are asked to do. Why are the police waging a war on drugs, war on crime, war on disorder, a war on terror? Are they really the best, most just way for the state to address these issues? Why indeed? How did their role develop historically? The history of policing, which goes back only 150 years as we know it, has problematic roots in 18th century slavery, colonialism, and the property class's view that they needed protection from those without property. In the 19th century, this was especially true as industrialized workers began to organize and make demands on factory owners. In the US, the precursors of modern police departments were often created specifically to catch slaves, to suppress workers' movements, or to carry out vigilante raids on native populations, such as the te Texas Rangers did. How do we change this model? It begins with understanding. Anthropology offers one avenue to understanding and studying insular police culture. As stated in the introduction to the volume, The Anthropology Police, edited by today's speaker, Dr. Kevin Karpiak. This field enables a reassessment of police violence relationship with a broad consideration of the human stakes at the center. Dr. Karpiak is a founder of the discipline of anthropological study of police and currently a professor in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology and Criminology at Eastern Michigan University. Among his roles and accomplishments, his many roles and accomplishments, he is also director of the Southeastern Michigan Criminal Justice Policy Research Project, or SMART, and co-editor of the Cornell University Press monograph series, Police Worlds, Studies in Security, Crime, and Governance. He received his PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of California at Berkeley in 2009, for which he conducted a multi-sided ethnography of French community policing reform. 
Since 2016, he has been conducting research on police oversight commissions in Washtenaw County, Michigan, and currently serves on the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Office's 21st Century Policing Compliance Commission. And I would like to just mention that we will post links to these, some of the things I've just mentioned in the chat. And so, uh, Dr. Karpiak, welcome. Thank you. Uh, th thank you for the introduction. I didn't know that was coming, but uh, that was that was amazing. Thank you. Um, made me sound maybe better and smarter than I am, but I'm happy. I'm happy to be here. Um, Shelley did some of the work already that I was going to do, just introducing myself. Um, I'm a, currently a professor at, at EMU um, in the, the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminology. Um, I teach mostly in the criminology part of that department, although we like to mix, even though all of my training is in cultural anthropology. I'm kind of a cultural anthropologist that ended up studying police, uh, which at the time that I did it was a little bit of a novelty. It's, it's a lot more common now than it, than it used to be. Um, but I think that pathway for me has really allowed me kind of a different way into thinking about police and to ask questions about police that I wanna talk a little bit uh, about today. Uh, Cause I think they might, I think add to the, the larger conversation that the league is, is hoping to kind of foster on, on thinking about criminal justice and, and things like that uh, this, this season. So one of the things I like to, emphasize, especially my broader kind of lecture courses for undergrads in policing, um, most of whom uh, my students are not anthropologists or usually criminology students wanting to be in some way invested in policing or the criminal justice system, is to really give them a sense of the scope of human history and policing's place in it. So if you think, if you start there, Human beings like you and I, biologically the same, that we could plop down next to us, uh, you know, and raise as our own, have been around for about 300,000 years. That's an immense, immense time frame. If you think places like Jericho, which were big, had big civic works projects, are, are 10,000 years old. Uh, places like Çatalhöyük in, in, in kind of southern Turkey, which was a big urban settlement of bigger than, for example, Chelsea or Celine. It was over 10,000 people living together for thousands of years. Uh, even places like ancient Athens, uh, you know, home of all the, the great uh, founders of thinking about democracy and reason, um, was 2,000 years ago, none of these places had police. Police as we understand it today is about, as Shelley said, about, about 200, maybe 300 years old, depending on where you put the origin. So human beings have been around for 300,000 years, 299,700 of them. They've lived sometimes in huge urban settlements with different classes, different ethnic groups, different political positions. Uh, with de democratic decision-making sometimes uh, without police, which is something that is hard to wrap your head around actually uh, today. In, in part because of uh, something that 
some scholars of police have called police fetishism, which is the idea that, that we kind of all have, I think, ingrained in us a little bit. It's the, the sense that policing is an absolutely necessary part of our contemporary life, right? As, as Rob, uh, Robert Reiner uh, kind of put it, it's the ideological, ideological assumption that the police are a prerequisite of social order so that a police force, so without a police force, chaos would ensue, right? Or, um, you know, as my uh, colleague, uh, uh, Will Garriott says, that police are so commonplace today that it is often difficult not to see their development as somehow inevitable as the product of some social or political destiny. And what's important about naming this police fetishism is that it really serves a challenge for those of us who want to study police and ask questions about police, uh, not necessarily even take political positions about police, but just think about police, this really, this police fetishism really serves as a challenge, kind of the primary challenge, the first step challenge to really kind of think beyond. It's a, it serves a particular challenge to thinking about police. Right? It's the, the, the scholar uh, Michael uh, Ignatieff says, it's, Thinking about police requires a certain kind of mental struggle against one's own sense of the, the social necessity of it. Uh, and so I really would like to start a little bit there uh, to think about, to go over just a little bit where this sense of uh, inevitability, where the centrality of policing in our way of thinking about the world came from a little bit before then going on to suggesting ways that we might think creatively or anew about, about that relationship. So in part, I think the, this, the, the centrality of uh, police as, a, as necessary for the creation of our contemporary social order, if that makes any sense, uh, has, has itself a long history that even predates the police as an institution as we know it today. And it has to do with the idea that social order itself uh, emerges from a strong central sovereign, king, or an authority figure of some sort. That without a central authority figure, that there would be no reason to follow laws or social rules. So that uh, really social order and peace and, and, and happiness uh, requires a social figure. Uh, it, you know, that, again, I don't want to get into the long history of that thought. One of the classic uh, people to go for that is, is Thomas Hobbes, but he's, he's, he's not the only one. But I bring that up, if only because, again, my own... Uh, academic education comes through cultural anthropology. And in a real sense, the, the foundation of cultural anthropology is an academic discipline, which is itself is pretty recent, early 20th century, really, late 19th, early 20th century. In a real sense, cultural anthropology, especially political anthropology, kind of the, the cultural, the study, the cultural anthropological study of politics and political formations, um, really emerged 
as a way to kind of counteract or rebut this idea of the necessity of a central sovereign for the proper working of social life. And in part, it, it did so by just kind of responding to a perplexity that uh, kind of Europeans had as they kind of expanded uh, across the world in, in their kind of colonial enterprises. They brought with them the idea that this kind of central authority figure was absolutely necessary for the proper order uh, of things. Uh, but yet they were completely perplexed when they found that many of the people and places that they came into contact with didn't have a central sovereign like that, didn't have a, a central king often, didn't have police forces, didn't have jails, didn't have judges, didn't have written rule books or codes of law. And that was a real kind of perplexity uh, for, for people. Uh, and there was kind of uh, one of two responses possible uh, to that perplexity. One was that they didn't have it because they didn't know any better uh, and that they were savages and animals. Uh, the, in the other was, I think, what early cultural anthropology really tried to emphasize, you know, and thinking especially of the work of, of people like the, the, the Polish-English ethnographer Bronislaw Malinowski, um, who um, did his research in a place called the Trobrain Islands, which is in kind of the south, the uh, western Pacific, uh, and really found that, again, in a place like that, there were no central authority figures, right? There, there was no written code book. There was not possible to violate laws in the, in the sense that we understand it. But yet there was a certain pattern to everyday social life. There, was, there were expectations. There were shared views of the world and shared behaviors. And the question was, how was that possible? And for in his answer, and what he showed through his kind of description of everyday life among the Trobern Islanders, was that a large part of that social order, of that kind of regulating and patterning of our collective lives was not vertical. Uh, there was no need for a vertical sense of that. It was really lateral. It was through a series of what he called social informal social control mechanisms kinds of things that we do to each other all the time that help shape each other's behaviors. So, and the examples of those could be something as easily as like gentle teasing each other. And when you, te when, when you tease someone else, you're trying to shape their behavior and it could escalate to, to mocking or ridicule, right? It could be through the lot of things like losing prestige. It could be through, you know, he, he, there's lots of actually anthropological descriptions of how sorcery it, it works uh, in, in these ways as, as social control mechanisms. But it could also be kind of wrapped up in one's personal sense of who they are, right? That there's not necessarily a, the need for an external sovereign, but it can be wrapped up in kind of certain kinds of ideas of the self, and ideas, certain ideas of what relation, certain kinds of relationships are like, right? So that once Malinowski could see it amongst the Trobern Islanders, it became actually very clear that 
these same kinds of mechanisms operate not just amongst the children islanders, but amongst places with central authorities, places with police forces, places with uh, prisons and law books also use these social control mechanisms mainly in the most common way uh, to produce the order uh, that, that, they, that, they, that they exhibit. So that, for example, no one made me come here today to give this lecture. Right? I'm here because I want to, and it's because it's wrapped up in my sense of who I am and what I want to do and the kind of relationships I want to have, right? No one made any of you come here as far as I understand. But again, every time the league has one of these, people show up, right? When I walk into a room, no one tells me not to walk on my hands upside down. I walk in a certain kind of way because of my sense of expectations for how something like that works. Those kinds of mechanisms are taught. And they're not necessarily taught in a vertical way, they're taught in a lateral way. And actually most of our social lives are produced in that way, is what anthropologists have found uh, through, through, you know, through the last hundred plus years of, of thinking about kind of social order and, and uh, its reproduction. Now, which raises the question, to go back, to our original question, why then this police fetishism? Why then, if actually the majority of our social existence doesn't require this kind of central authority or a police force, why in our imaginations has it become so central? And that's what I wanna, I wanna talk a little bit about today. We'll see how much, I, I hope I don't get too into the weeds on it. I, wanted, I do wanna explore that today. But in summary, I'm going to suggest that it's, it's become so central for, for kind of three related reasons in that it's become central to our ideas about what political life and governance is. It's become central to our very ideas about what human nature is and how we should act upon it through governance. And it's also become central to some of our central values for how we think about freedom, nonviolence, even human rights are really in ways that are maybe surprising, wrapped up with the development of police as both a way of thinking about governance and as an institution that kind of reproduces itself uh, over generations. So I wanna, I wanna explore that a little bit today uh, in, in, in our talk. So I said that um, for 299,000, uh, 700 years, roughly. I'm not, I'm not very good at math. Uh, maybe uh, that human beings live together without something called police. The really the the word police uh, started circulating as a way to think about politics and governance and administration in kind of the 1500s and 1600s. But the real first professional police officer. The, the person whose job it was to do police uh, was actually this guy. Uh, it was, his name was Gabriel Nicolas de Lorraine, uh, who was the first Lieutenant of Police of Paris, uh, appointed by Louis XIV in 1667. And so he was 
called the lieutenant of the police uh, at Paris, but I'm not sure it actually makes a lot of sense to call him a police officer in the sense that we know it today. One, he was kind of the only one. I mean, he had kind of teams of people that he would kind of send out to do things, but what he was imagined as being responsible for was something a lot broader than what we think of today when we talk about police. Police in the 16th and 17th century, even through up through the 18th century, uh, in kind of political thought, in governance, in kind of, in kind of political philosophy, had a much different, broader meaning. So it meant something, it didn't mean a set, a kind of institution with guys in uniforms with guns that could put you in jail. It meant something much more akin to something like good governance. It even had an aesthetic quality so that you could go to a city and talk about its beautiful police. It meant well run, it meant well managed, and it meant, you know, beautiful, right? So that, for example, you know, uh, some historians uh, of police point out all the, the kind of broad things that uh, Lorraine was responsible for in his, in his role of Lieutenant of Police. It was security, for sure. And it was actually illicit bearing of arms was the key, was one of the key reasons for, for uh, the, the establishment of police. As we're still dealing with things like gun control, the original police department was set up due to bourgeois concerns over the, the increasing prevalence of you know, uh, firearms actually, and, and fights over firearms. But he also was in, involved, responsible for sanitation work, cleaning the streets, the, the, the lights, he was responsible for the fire department and for flood emergency evacuation. He was responsible for making, uh, assuring the food supplies and assuring food prices, making sure baguettes were there. Or they weren't baguettes actually, but bread was the, 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 the appropriate, was not being charged too much so that people could uh, afford it and that there wouldn't be kind of bread riots. He was in charge of uh, uh, regulating stocks and stock prices. He was in charge of the, 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 the hostels, he was in charge of the hotels, he was in charge of, of establishing weights and measures, of book, of book selling and publishing, he was in charge of regulating morals and religion. He was in charge of things like pub, what we would call public health today. It was a much broader version of police than what we think of when we think about police today. So much so that in my mind, I'm not sure I would call him police in the sense that we mean it today. Like he, he has as much uh, in common with, for example, things like public health or city administration or public administration today uh, as police per se. But one thing that did emerge with this, uh, around the same time as kind of the establishment of the Lieutenancy de Police of Paris was a new way of thinking about what government was and how it should do its work. Um, and here I'm relying in large part on a kind of a, a historian and philosopher called uh, Michel Foucault, but the, the argument goes that kind of in the wake of the, of the, the, the medieval uh, justification for governance had to do with kind of the the greater glorification of, of, of the church and of God. But in the 
in the early 15th, 16th, 17th century, there kind of was, was a demand for a different way of thinking about the purpose of government. What was the reason for government? What was the raison d'etat? Was the reason of state? Was, was, was the, there's a huge kind of set of kind of political tracks about that, including Machiavelli is one of the, the famous kind of thinkers about that. Uh, and what they were searching for was really a justification for why is there government? Right, in a, and can we justify it through secular terms, not necessarily through metaphysical terms? And what they were really searching for was a way to, to kind of justify political power outside of just sheer kind of will to power, outside of just sheer might makes right. What is the larger good that governance is going for? And can we, can we explain it in terms of secular uh, goals? Um, and really people like Le Reigny and, and Louis XIV uh, through him and his uh, minister Colbert who kind of established the, the post were really kind of drawing from a, this kind of political philosophy of police uh, in the larger sense. It said the goal of government should be fostering the general well-being and health of its people. Right? And that's what the, the original sense of police meant for them, right? And so in addition to that kind of different goal, a larger goal, there was also a, a different kind of way of kind of thinking about governance through the police, right? And the, Foucault's example of this, uh, Interestingly, both kind of, there, he gives a couple examples, both kind of predating and postdating the actual establishment of the lieutenancy of police. Uh, but one of his examples actually is, is very relevant to today. It had to do with how, thinking about vaccines as a way of governing disease, right? Versus other kinds of ways of thinking about disease. Where if, for example, one traditional way of thinking about disease and contamination Whereas to try to keep the disease out, think of your kind of biblical leper colonies, or even your quarantine in the original sense where you had to stay outside the city for 40 days, right? The idea was the way to regulate disease was to make sure that disease doesn't enter your city or your political body. Keep it out, keep the bad things out and keep the inside pure, right? So Foucault argues that in addition to that strategy, which never really went away, and we still see it in a lot of different ways today, but in addition to that, there was a new way of thinking about, a new strategy, a new playbook for how to govern disease, which was what he calls security, actually. But you could see it in, for example, in the development of vaccines, where vaccines don't operate by trying to keep the disease out of bodies, they actually put the disease into bodies, but in a regulated way, in a managed way, in small amounts so that then the body's immune system can react to it and then prevent larger outbreaks and spreads of disease. So it's a way of really thinking about the objects that one governs in a different kind of way in order to foster its health, right? So, this is where I could potentially get into the weeds a little bit. So I might try and decide how much I want to get in the weeds and how much I want to skip. 
uh, I, I want to suggest a little bit that that way of thinking about policing, that way of thinking about governance, has its parallels in a lot of different ways of thinking about creation or even uh, uh, human activity, right? And then you could even see a parallel, for example, in how in art and how we think about an artist and a painter. So if you think about the classic vision of a, of a grand artiste, the grand painter is kind of captured in this painting here, where it kind of there's a master and there's a canvas. And everything on that canvas is the direct expression of that central sovereign's will. That shade, that paint blot, that arrangement of figures is all the result of one central vision. And that's usually how we, that's a classic way of thinking about art right? and how one kind of manages a canvas. But it's, it's not the only way of thinking about art. Right. There's other ways of thinking about art. You know, here I have an example of kind of uh, an Andy Warhol painting, right? That, that is a different way of thinking about creation and a canvas. Whereas Andy Warhol didn't take this picture of, of Marilyn Monroe. Andy Warhol didn't even necessarily even do the, the screening, uh, the screen, the ink screening, the color uh, her at all, right? It's taking pre-existing kinds of elements, right? And pre-existing social relations and not necessarily removing any of them or having complete control over them, but modulating them, rearranging them in ways to create something new and beautiful. Another way of thinking about the same thing is, uh, you see I've taken some of these slides from my, my, my own lectures when I, when I look about this, is to think about again, how one makes use of space so that kind of classic painting way, that kind of leper colony way of thinking about how to regulate disease. You know, we could also think about how, for example, a police officer might regulate urban space, right? And then that, that classic way, we, Foucault called it kind of disciplinary apparatus, right? And in that kind of way of regulating space or creating, creating beauty, right? What the sovereign does or what the delegate of the sovereign does is it's always vigilant to make sure the things that are on the canvas are what are, are what were pre-approved, are what were part of the vision, uh, and are do and are and are appropriate. And if the things are not appropriate, the 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 action is to seize it and remove it, and either to reform it, uh, to reshape it back into what it should be, or to eliminate it. Right. So in policing, that means this is out of place. I'm going to grab it and take it in until we can figure out what to do with it. Right? Which is a strategy that exists and has existed for a long time. But along with kind of policing as we understand it today, was not just that strategy. It was also something Foucault called security, which is again a, a just like the painting version. Uh, is a different way of thinking about how to use that space. And instead of kind of pre-approving the things in the space, what it does is it pays attention to what is in that space already. It assumes a pre-existing space, right? And it wants to know about what the things are in that space. 
and how they act, what their tendencies are. And it makes use of that knowledge in order to then plan interventions, often of a preventative nature, right? So on this space, thinking about this space, Mr. Triangle goes left and right. Mr. Square goes around in a circle. Mr. Circle goes up and down. You can try and make them. So they have tendencies and vectors and patterns. And the job of police is to understand the things on that canvas and then be able to intervene in order to avoid certain kinds of outcomes. So if our goal is to avoid Mr. Square and, or, or Mr. Triangle and Mr. Circle to kind of clash, right? we have to understand what their patterns are, what their tendencies are, what their vectors are. And then we can intervene, not necessarily to remove Mr. Triangle from the canvas or even make Mr. Triangle a kind of thing that goes left and right, to try to change that very nature, right? What you do is you modulate it. Maybe you build a wall between them. Maybe you find some other kinds of way to avoid their interaction. Right? Maybe you try to lessen one or the other. That is a way to think about security and governance. And again, it's not just police. You can think about it in economics. You can think about it again in public health. You can think about it in all different kinds of ways. And that's a little bit Foucault's point here is that this is a broader way of thinking about governance. Right? The police kind of comes out of. But there's a couple of important points about it that I want to that I want to emphasize the, the, that are absolutely necessary to the creation of what we think of as police and why it's become so central. In order for this strategy to work, the security strategy, which became by far the, the preferred strategy of using police, of using governance and intervention, you have to know what those things are. So you have to know what the kinds of objects on your canvas are, and you have to know what their nature is, that is how they act, what their tendencies, what their desires are. Right? So you actually need a certain kind of knowledge, a certain kind of expertise. And in fact, one could argue, when people do argue and have argued, that actually the, the, the birth of the social sciences or the human sciences even, actually emerged from this demand of this strategy of power. In order to act, you know, act appropriately or, or, or do this effectively as a strategy of power, you have to know what Mr. Triangle is. Mr. Triangle could be criminals. How do criminals act? What is a criminal? What are their tendencies, right? What are, you know, how do they interact with public space? How do they interact with, uh, with kind of, uh, the marketplace in, in town, right? How, what, is the, what are the tendencies of the marketplace? When is, it, when is it busy, when is it not, right? How do we make sure that those don't interact? You need someone called a criminologist who understands a criminal. You need someone like an, called an economist to understand the, the workings of the economy. And then you base your governance on that kind of expertise. Now, that in the biggest sense, I think actually is where policing as we understand it emerges from as a way of thinking about governance as a kind of mode of preventative action based on an expert analysis of the things that are in play and how they act and how they interact, right? 
you'll notice that, for example, versus the kind of informal control mechanisms that we talked about earlier, where they're kind of lateral and kind of people act, kind of everybody acting on each other in different kinds of ways, that strategy of, of governance requires a kind of special group of people, a set group of experts who are, have particular authority, particular legitimacy to enact governance because of their special kinds of knowledge and how to do those things. They know how to do these things better than other people and therefore they have a special right to, to participate in governance versus kind of uh, the commoners. Okay? That I think is one of the key moves, one of the key essential elements in thinking about police. The other, and, and that in fact predates in large degree what we think of when we think about the creation of the police as an institution in the American and Anglo sense. Right? This is a conversation that's happening in France and on the continent, but actually is very much resisted uh, in kind of the Anglo-American world. Uh, until for for a while, so that uh, the, oftentimes in our history, in kind of the, the classic history books of of policing, they 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 kind of cite the foundation of modern police with some this guy Robert Peel, um, who established the the Metropolitan Police Force for London in 1829, the so-called Bobbies, which were the again the first kind of professional police force, and I think in a sense that we would recognize. But what's really interesting about Peel's version of police was that he really narrowed down the version of what it claimed to be. By the time of Peel, right, we, we no longer had this broad sense of the general well-being and the general beautiness uh, uh, being what police meant. It really was the modern sense of a specific organization of uniformed, paramilitary dudes uh, whose job was specifically to provide that well-being and beautiness, but not through the, not through regulating stock prices, not through uh, regulating, uh, preventing fires necessarily, or, or uh, assuring the price of bread, which kind of got splintered off into other kinds of professions. Police, or the profession that said they could provide that well-being through basically urban pacification, right? Through something they called crime control and prevention, by which they meant in practice kind of the pacification of the newly kind of burgeoning uh, urban, uh, urban populations. That by controlling those people through something called crime control and prevention, they could, could provide for the general happiness and well-being. Now, it's really important to understand that uh, the, before he created the, the Bobbies, the Robert Peel was in charge of the colonial enterprise in Ireland. He was a director of the colonial enterprise in Ireland and in the, in the occupation and pacification of Irish resistance. And in fact, what he tried to do with the Bobbies was to have a parallel kind of force uh, that he could then bring to London and the English territories properly, to which the English had been traditionally very, very kind of resistant to any idea of a police. They thought of, again, as this 
there's all kinds of great historical quotes about the dirty French and their police, that they, it was really considered very non-English, right? Uh, uh, up until right around the time, maybe even just before. Before the, right? Right. And so, so, uh, hmm? oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So that was a that was a creation of so and, and, the, and the parallelisms were very explicit. The blue of the Bobby's coats that we still associate with police officers were chosen as a direct contrast to the red coats of the British military forces. Uh, it, was seen as, it, was, it was seen as a way of expressing the similarity, but also categorical difference, that these were not going to be an occupying force. These were something that were going to be something for the public good and responsive to the public. And not, and again, importantly in the beginning, not armed in the same way. As, as a military force, but still using some of the same techniques of pacification to establish a general sense of good, the good uh, is what, uh, is what the, the, the original police force was, was kind of imagined as. Now in the, in the US context, drew largely on this Anglo version of, of policing, but if the, but along with the, the kind of forms of social inequality and the, and the reinforcement of social hierarchies that came from the British experience, uh, the American experience uh, was used to, to enforce the same kind of, or it was used as well to exist the kinds of social hierarchies that existed here, which is why uh, uh, a third kind of tradition that, that merges into the American style of policing is again, this kind of long history of kind of anti-Black anti uh, policing and thinking about specifically the, the people uh, that it places as a kind of uh, property and as a kind of value, valuing it in terms of its economic productivity. Yeah. So, that's the development of police as we know it, <laughs> in a nutshell. Um, hopefully I didn't go too fast or too long there, but it raises the question, given, especially those last two slides, its connection with, from its foundation with kind of importing a model of colonial domination and of racial domination uh, into kind of the everyday governance of our, of our social lives, what in our title is you know, policing community injustice. What does policing have to do with actually either of those two terms, but especially justice? And so I think that's a good question. I asked it myself. Uh, the, the answer, I think, getting towards the answer, I think, is one person that helps get towards that answer is someone called Max Faber. Uh, who a lot of, especially the scholars of policing, especially the earliest scholars of policing, sociologists of policing, really relied on. Uh, and so one kind of formulation that Weber had when thinking about kind of this question of what is modern, the modern political form known as the state? What is government and what makes it legitimate? What is this, the basis of its legitimacy? He kind of suggested this formula which is he suggested that the one way to think about the state is it's that human community 
which claims the monopoly of legitimate force over a given territory. All right, so it's a, it's a human community which says we have, which makes the claim that we have or should have the monopoly, the sole right to do legitimate force over a special territory. Right? Now for, for Weber, this was really a formula. It was all these pieces had to go together, human plus community plus the claims to it, the monopoly, the legitimacy, the force, all those had to go together. And all of those were tricky terms. I'm gonna be interested in the forms of community in a second uh, and exploring the forms of community that go into thinking about police. Weber himself was actually mostly interested in thinking about the forms of legitimacy that went into the, the kinds of things that police do, the kind of the state in general, and as a, a kind of the, the delegate of state power, the police do. And one thing that he said that the legitimate state action in this modern form has to kind of jump two ethical hurdles, or it has to respond to two ethical challenges is maybe a better way of saying it. One he called the ethic of responsibility, which is the idea that one must be accountable for the foreseeable results of one's actions. So the ethic of responsibility suggests that in order to be legitimate, for in that formula, in order for it to be proper state action, it has to be legitimate. In order for it to be legitimate, the person doing it or the body doing it has to be accountable for the foreseeable results of their actions. So they have to show that they thought through what was going to happen based on the course of action that they chose, right? And then be accountable to that force. Right? The other kind of hurdle, uh, which it was a very different one, which he called the ethic of ultimate ends, was that one must also be accountable for one's guiding values. And not just kind of the means to how I got to my goal, but you also have to be accountable for the goal itself. What was the goal here? What is your overall goal as an organization? What are you trying to achieve? Right? And you have to be able to account for that as well. So both these goal, means and ends have to be accounted for in order for any kind of action to be legitimate. Right? So you can think of the ethic of responsibility as justifying how you do it or how you get there. Do you take the bus or the, or the motorcycle? Do you do traffic stops or do you do, uh, do, you do traffic stops in person or do you do video surveillance? Right? What is your means? What is your tool? Right? But the tools, the means in themselves are not an adequate legitimation. You have to do both the means and the goals. So what is the goal here? What are you trying to accomplish? And then to return, are the means that you're using appropriate to achieve that goal, right? So those are, that whole conversation for Weber is what needs to happen in order for something like police to be just. Now, I know that's a little abstract. So what does that mean when thinking about for example, contemporary policing and the role community could play in policing. So what, is, what role does community play in thinking about police injustice? I wanna give just one quick example 
of, of, what, of what that can mean. So there's in kind of, again, kind of classic intro to criminology kind of conversations. Um, one thing you learn very quickly in, in, in studies of police is that, especially in the US today, but even increasingly throughout the world, police always claim to be doing community policing. It's a very popular thing to say, we're, we're doing community policing. Everyone likes to say they're doing it, but what that means in practice and also in conception can be very, very different. And here I'm relying a lot, it's on the bottom of the screen here, on a, on a, on a, on a scholar named Stephen Herbert, um, who's kind of broken down different ways of thinking about what community policing means. One version he calls something called broken windows policing. And one he wants to kind of assert is, this is what community policing really should mean. And so he kind of breaks down the broken windows policing and community policing. But the point is actually both of these two styles on the, on the screen here often go under the name community policing. But they're actually really importantly different, not just in terms of what police do, uh, on the street, but even more importantly, for how they envision the role of community in policing and how they assess the ultimate justice of what police action is. Okay. So then, for example, this kind of broken windows policing, uh, this community policing that goes by uh, broken windows policing. And the, and you hear this a lot, like we're doing community policing and I could, you know, and the proof is that we're always out in the community, you know, and we're, and we're out on foot. And so that's community police, right? Uh, but just being out in the community is not necessarily community policing, that's policing, right? Uh, and, and if you're doing it in a certain kind of way, it's very different from what Steve Herbert wants to call uh, community policing. For example, broken windows policing, this idea that the job of police is to be out in the community, out on foot, and paying attention to kind of the little details of disorder, the broken windows uh, of, of buildings, sometimes literally, but also the other signs of urban disorder that kind of cause people to feel unsafe and unsettled in their, in their environment that that's what police should be focusing on, right? And that that's what community policing means. That style of policing, good or bad, uh, one could be the judge, but it imagines the role of the community in a certain kind of way, and it imagines the police in a certain kind of way. In that version, the community stands in maybe for setting the goals, or the ultimate values or the standards, right? So that in that vision, kind of the community doesn't like these kinds of people on the corner. And so, or people get un, unsettled when there's people around the corner. And so our job is to get rid of them, right? So it maybe has a role for thinking of incorporating community in maybe setting some of the values, uh, but the active role of setting police tactics, of setting police administration, of doing police work, is still the sole priority of that human community called the police, right? The police guard that mandate for themselves. The work of policing, the day-to-day -day means by which we do it, right? And the short-term goals to achieve the large-term goal maybe 
uh, are all set by police. Community doesn't have an active role to play besides having a set of values. Whereas for Herbert, that's unfortunate and because he sees com real community policing as being about the co-production of policing strategies. To really expand in that formula of that human community which claims a monopoly of legitimate uh, violence or force over territory, to that word community should not just incorporate uniformed police officers, but should be community. Right? And that communities should co-produce police strategies. Right? So that in what Herbert says, true policing strategies, the police and citizenry are co-equal partners in the construction and evaluation of tactics aimed at ameliorating community distress. Uh, that the citizenry are not just kind of there to kind of uh, be informed of what police are doing and, uh, and because the police are the experts on these things, but that the citizenry are, act are actively involved in setting uh, the, the, the goals and tactics and are imagined as experts in policing on a co-equal level uh, in, in the process. Right? And for, for Herbert, that's both a very different incorporation in, into policing uh, of, of what community might mean. And it's also a really different version of what justice looks like. Because if in the former, the broken windows policing, the goal is to get to remove the kinds of things that don't belong there and they're causing problems to get rid or to fix the broken windows, right? Where it's very clear who the problems are and who the good guys are, and we just need to get rid of the problems. In real co-production, those lines get blurrier. It's not about who's the good guys and the bad guys, right? In fact, there's an argument that precisely those people that have been most policed, precisely those people that have most been affected by policing, including the formerly incarcerated and over-policed, have an important role to play in setting the priorities of police. Something that police departments have a real hard time thinking about. And so Herbert emphasizes that even though everyone says they're doing community policing, almost exclusively what they're doing is broken windows policing. This community policing in the sense that he means it is really hard for police officers and police departments to really swallow and even for the broader community to really wrap their head around. In large part, he argues, and I think I, I follow him because of these ingrained assumptions about how policing, governance, and kind of liberty are necessarily connected. We have a sense that they're necessarily connected in a certain kind of way. Again, this kind of sense of police fetishism. And just to close a little bit, to me, that's why, for me, an anthropology of police, which tries to think about how policing works in the larger human context, both I gave kind of the historical context of the 300,000 years, but also across different kinds of national traditions. Uh, so here are a couple of books that, that, I'm, that I'm really fond of. Uh, Farhana Ibrahim's uh, From Family to Police Forest, Jeff Martin's Sentiment, Reason, and Law, Mirko Godfrey's Policing the Frontier, all of which are exploring policing in different contexts. And in a way that I, I, maybe we could get through some of the chat, but I, I unfortunately have a lot of time here to talk about, I think are really helpful when we understand how policing works in different kinds of contexts 
that necessary relationship between policing community and what a just outcome looks like is really shattered. They no longer seem necessarily related in the same kind of way, which I think and I hope actually opens the door for thinking creatively about new ways, new constellations of how to create those, those relationships. There are so many questions and some of the ones that I had prepared, I'm, I'm not sure how to um, phrase them to kind of fit into that. I, I think that one of the things for me was that thinking that you're studying the police and, and how you actually do that. You know, because I know that like around the Sheriff Clayton's, you know, what was 21st century policing committee and stuff like that. And um, so, so as part of that, you know, what are, what are some of the ethical questions that come up when you're an anthropologist studying police? Like if you do field work, you know, and you're with the police and there's an incident where they are, you witness police brutality or something like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that sort of thing and in the context of a study? Over. I'm gonna share my screen just one second because the answer I'm gonna give is, is, is from one of the people on the last slide. Okay. <laughs> so um, uh, Beatrice Jureghi, that middle, that middle book uh, mm -hmm. called Provisional Authority. It's about um, police officers in kind of uh, Northwest India. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of her kind of general points in the book is to get us to understand how not centrally authoritative they are in, <laughs> in that context. Like it's very hard to even get a uniform, right? <laughs> let alone to actually have any actual authority over many people. Uh, right in that context, right? What instead they have what she calls these provisional, this provisional authority, which is much more reliant on kind of a, on, on a set of social relationships and never completely established and also always contingent. Right? That's how policing kind of functions in that. But in the course of doing that work, uh, she came up with something called what she called dirty anthropology. <laughs> um, which is, you, you know, I said that until B, who, who is a good friend of mine, uh, and I are, are basically kind of the same generation of, of, of anthropologists. Um, and bef but before us, it was very rare for, for cultural anthropologists, especially in the U.S., to study police. Like, like when I say rare, that it didn't happen. <laughs> there was nobody, right? And uh, in fact, a lot of my early work is really trying to work through why, right? Um, and in part because exactly the dynamic that you raised was really difficult for how anthropologists thought about who they were and what their work was. Uh, especially since this, the, the, the late 60s, 70s, 80s are, have been really kind of, they, they wanted to be political, they wanted to be social advocates, of, of kind of progressive visions of kind of racial and, and, and economic equality. And so they, they felt much more comfortable studying the people affected by police than police themselves, right? Because you can't empathize and, and feel good about the, the people you're studying in the same way when you're studying police. 
right? So, because it is, you see them do not great things, right? You have to have this weird relationship where you, in order to learn about them, you actually have to develop relationships with them as people, right? Because our method is to really something called participant observation, where you, 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 our method, instead of doing surveys or lab experiments, our method, our actual method of learning in cultural anthropology is to go live with people and learn from them and, and directly, right? So that for my, you know, people work in France, I lived at a police academy and I was in France for about three years, right? And you build these social, these, these personal relationships with people and you get to understand them as people, but you also have, you see them do these things, right? And you understand the larger implications. And so it requires a different way of, I think, thinking about what the role of a researcher is and what our obligations to the people that we study are and the people that we are not necessarily studying are. Um, I don't know if I have the final answer, uh, but I know that, for example, in my in my work and the, and the, you know I'm doing a lot of things around Washington lately, but in my work on the 21st century policing or compliance thing of, 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 of Sheriff Clayton, I'm interested in it, in part about why I'm willing to give my time is because I do think of it as a potential way to rethink how a broader community could be invested and have authority over, for example, setting the policies in a real concrete way of, of a police force, like the, the sheriff's office, Washington County, right? Like I, I, I do see potential there. I'm, I still do, even though it, you know, it's been doing it for a while and I'm not sure what, the, what we have to show for it yet. Um, you know, so I still see that potential, although I also do see, and I'm often sometimes critical, that there's still some of these dynamics working at play, even in the best of police, right? This defense of the, the central mandate, this defense that we're the right people to do this, this defense, the, the, uh, this kind of a real reluctance to rethink uh, the fundamental dynamics of, of policing are in play. And I think it's important to kind of point those out and show them when they're, when they're in play. So have you ever actually shadowed, like here in Washtenaw County, I mean, you mentioned you lived with the French police, but here in Washtenaw County, um, you know, you- I've done it a little bit. I've done it a little bit. Um, I, so I did my, my original dissertation work um, in France. And then for that, I, I, I did some of that, but I actually was mostly interested uh, in not the guys on the street. I was actually interested in the administrators uh, and how they made decisions about like how to, how to set the syllabus for the police academy, how to do the evaluations for who to hire or not, or who to give raises for. Uh, so I was kind of interested in that. So even in my initial dissertation research, I didn't do a whole ton of it. Lots of people do. Um, lots, in fact, there was an, there's another uh, book, a pretty famous book that happened at the same time uh, as I was doing mine by an anthropologist, Didier Fassan, called The Forces of Order, um, or I believe is the name of it. I may not think, may not think of the French title. Um, who, and he did the ride-alongs and was on the street with them. Uh, but I've always been interested in kind of what happens in the offices a little bit. And so I've done a little bit about, of, of that here in Washtenaw as I've shifted my research focus to that. But I end up still kind of really be interested in not, not that I don't think it's important or that important things happen on the street, but I think we overlook a lot of how much policing happens in the offices. 
Uh, and so I'm oftentimes interested in the administration of police. And so that's why I get interested in things like the 21st Century Commission or the police oversight commissions around as a different, again, another kind of way of rethinking how communities can be involved in police administration in a different kind of way, uh, rather than just uniform police being kind of responsible for police administration. How can we rethink the role of communities in police administration itself? Um, and that's kind of that's kind of where my focus has been. Yeah. So, um, so if we wanted to have people who are studying the police, um, you know, actually accompanying them mm -hmm. in their work, I mean, is that something that's I mean, you know, they're supposed to wear these body cams, but you know, you never know when they're going to turn them off or on or whatever. And and it seems like a kind of a risky thing for a civilian to be following around the police that well, we have right now. I will say there's actually a lot of it. Like oh, there, there's there's been a lot of it. I mean, uh, not necessarily here specifically in Washtenaw County, but I would say actually most of the studies of policing are based on doing that. Okay. So I, mean, I could maybe, if, if, without being pedantic, I give a bibliography, but I would say. Uh, even one thing maybe I didn't, maybe I overemphasized or didn't make clear. I, when I say anthropologists haven't done a lot of this work, sociologists actually have. Okay. For, since at least the, the late 60s and 70s. Okay. Um, and, and, the, and for the most part, um, most of that work since the 60s and 70s has been based on a similar kind of participant observation, ride-alongs with police uh, and observing. And so that book by Didier Fassan that I mentioned was, is one of them. There's a lot, Stephen Herbert, who I also mentioned, did, did some of that kind of work. Uh, the other books I actually mentioned were all doing similar work like that, where they were kind of embedded with police. Um, and there's others as well. So it happens a lot. So it's very, very common uh, as a way to think about kind of getting a kind of a, an unfiltered view of what police do is, is, is at least the, the goal there, how unfiltered whenever is uh, in those situations is another question. Uh, but there's a lot of that work and I, I'm happy to, to point to some of it as well. But you're right, it, is, it does raise those kind of questions of danger and, 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 and what, can, what can one actually talk about and how to, are you violating people's privacy by talking about X, Y, or Z? Uh, are you actually getting access or are they just giving you, are they not taking you to the places where things really happen? You know, right. all those kinds of things uh, are, are things people have kind of tried to struggle through a little bit in this, in this, a good book. And again, forgive me for keep on recommending books, but there's, no an edited, there's an edited volume called Writing Police Worlds, I believe. Again, by Didier Fassan, but it includes a lot of different anthropologists uh, in that, um, where they kind of really go through some of, some of what I just talked about there. That's Writing Police Worlds? Right, writing, like writing. Yeah, right, W-R-I-T-I-N-G, yeah. right. mm -hmm. okay. So not to belabor this point too much because there are a few more questions, but um, so is there literature or have some of these sociologists or you know, um, social scientists ever reported on, you know, yeah, I was present at a, um, you know, where a police shot someone. Oh yeah, uh, uh, watching evidence of police violence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> One of the classic ones is, is, a, is, a, is a work from a guy, William Chambliss, uh, in a, in a, it's an article called Policing the Ghetto, uh, oh. where, where, he, where, he, where he does that. 
again, Didi Fassan's book just off the top of my head uh, has instances of that as well, where he watches instances of like police violence. Uh, and for sure in my own work, I haven't written about it necessarily very much, but I, I saw it and, and I, you have to grapple with it. Yeah. Uh, and what it means uh, and, what the, and how to write about it. Um, I, there's, often, there's lots of things actually that I'm, some things I know I can never write about. Um, but uh, yeah. I'm just curious, have you ever heard of a, a, a lawyer named T. Greg Doucette? I don't think so. Okay, well, uh, it, it might be of interest. He's, I follow him on Twitter. He, is, um, he has compiled this whole um, thread, this enormous Twitter thread of video mm -hmm. recordings of police violence like, mm -hmm. taken by observers. And mm -hmm. it seemed to me like that would be like a very uh, fertile field of exploration. I wonder if anybody is, you know, because all he's doing basically is mm -hmm. he's saying, here's a, here, I'm reporting on, you know, this, these issues. I'm, I'm passing mm -hmm. on this, these um, recordings of police violence. And some of it is just like unwatchable. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's amazing but anyway i wonder if anybody's kind of like looking at that no there's, there's well there's a couple different ways one can go there right and so there's one kind of there's one set of questions in the, from the social science perspective just about there's a set of questions about how prevalent is it how many of these incidents are there right like how how much does this actually happen are these anecdotes are these or is this you know persistent uh, there's a questions about why it happens. Mm -hmm. um, th those kind of, that first question, how, how many in, in, in terms of number happen? I actually don't think anthropologists will ever, ever be very good at that. That's where you need a sociologist or a political scientist or something like that. They're better with those big numbers right, and kind of counting things. Oh. Um, cultural anthropologists tend not to be very good with numbers. <laughs> and, their, and their method is not really good. Like when you're hanging out with a person, right? Or, or, or even 10 people or 50 people, you know, how many you can hang out with at a time, it's never gonna be as much as a survey could do, right? You're never gonna have that broad quantitative necessarily perspective on that. What you can focus on is like, how, what happened in that incident? What went together, mm -hmm. right? Uh, what, how were, you know, what happened beforehand? What happened afterwards? What were they thinking of before or after? What did they say? Uh, you know, you could, you could focus on the, you know, the, the concrete instance of it mm -hmm. right? and, and really understanding how it all came together. And that's what I think, um, yeah, that's what I'm, uh, that's what the kind of people I was talking about there are better at. Although there's definitely that literature out there trying to kind of assess the prevalence of it um, as well. There's also a literature on kind of assessing what to do with those videos. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's uh, because, because again, one one answer of how prevalent it is is it seems more prevalent now, uh, but it's most likely because we see it more, uh -huh. <laughs> and that there's no evidence that these kinds of violent incidents are in any way happening more. Right, no, we're seeing it more. Yeah, and, um, and so what that means. Or again, for uh, the possibilities of political action, uh, in, like the possibilities for how we think about police, um, are, are something that a lot of people 
uh, who've given a lot more thought to it than I have have written about. Um, one of my favorite is, is an anthropologist called Meg Stalkup, um, who has done some stuff on police videos, but also body cams and what kind of video evidence means. Um, but there's but there's other people. I think I, I've gotten one directly to me. I'm not sure. Oh, if it, okay. Uh, okay. I'm happy to answer it though. Um, so, so somebody asked what I thought, think about groups like the Washington Citizens Police Academy. Are, are these academies geared to create empathy for police tactics rather than encourage community participation in policing? Is this the wrong approach? Um, short answer, uh, yeah, I, I do think. I mean, I've never done the sheriff, the, the Washtenaw County. So I can't speak directly. I did the Ann Arbor one. I took it to learn what they're saying and in, 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 in seeing. But I, you know, I, my, my experience was, it was about the message always is we know what we're doing. Here's our expertise, be, be comfortable. Uh, and uh, as long as we show you what we're doing, we, right. we're not really asking you what we should do. We're telling you what we do and explaining why it's right. Right, so is, I, again, a different dynamic necessarily than, for example, what Steve right. Herbert thinks about when he talks about co-production. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I, mean, I have to say, I did take some years back, I took the Sheriff Clayton's Washtenaw Citizens Police Academy, and um, I learned a tremendous amount. But I think you and I, when we first met, I was telling you that, that when I came away from it, I didn't come away with, here's now how I continue with what I've been taught. You know, it was more like, Oh, now I've learned how wonderful the, the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department is, but mm -hmm. there wasn't any, you know, kind of way I could do anything with it. And then I started, you know, like talking to friends of color who were like, well, really? You know, that's what they were saying. But I don't want to, I, I actually do want to say that they do do a lot of things um, that I hadn't realized. So I did learn a lot. And, you know, but... Sheriff Clinton is doing, especially since this re-election, doing a lot. Yeah. But in it, like, and so in addition to the, the police, uh, what had been like the kind of police academy, I'm not sure what the official name is, but he also has something, I'm not sure if it started yet, but called the Police Reform Academy, which oh. is something very different. Wow. I, I think yeah. collaboration with the Washtenaw County chapter of My Brother's Keeper. And, oh. I, and, I, and I think, at least how he's explained it to me, is that he does see that as more of this kind of co-production model, Mm -hmm. uh, another question. Um, uh, so this was from some uh, uh, one of our participants who's out in Chelsea, and apparently the question is, what is the most important question to ask Chelsea City Council when they get the report of the audit of our police department? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I'm not. I'm going to give an answer. I'm not sure how helpful it is. So okay. It's going to be. A, a really big answer. Okay. To me, the question does go back to that vapor, right? Uh, and it's the reason we throw so much resources, the reason we give so much to police, right? the reason the police are such a big part of our budget is that they make a really tremendous claim that, that their profession, something that their profession can do, that we can provide safety and well-being with our resource, with the resources you give us, right? And so the question for me is always, you, you, 
what are you doing? Like, show me that you're doing that with those resources and that other kinds of things could not do it better, right? Show, one, show me what you mean by safety. And two, is your version, so is, and is your version of safety adequate? Does safety mean that there's, is, is the entirety of what safety means is there's not, you know, car burglaries? Or does safety mean that people have a safe place to go where they have shelter and heat and food? Right? That to me is safety. And it was part of the original, the, 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 the big sense of police, right? The, the general well-being, right? So isn't an adequate notion of what they're providing? Is, is what they're providing actually that profound, right? And if my real goal is, sure, I don't want cars to be burglarized, but I also want children to have food. Um, how can I, and, and whatever safety means to me includes that, right? Uh, how do I make sure that the resources we're giving would not be better adequately funneled to that, right? Yeah. And our police, and the other, the third part, our pol oftentimes police want to say that they do it, right? Or they can do it. So, you know, we're having this conversation about mental health responders in Washtenaw County and Ann Arbor, right? That police, you know, that we want, a, that we're including in what safety means, that we want people's mental health to be safely handled without the danger of an armed response, right? Is part of that conversation. Ideally, we would like that, right? Some police say that they can do it, right? But the question is, for me, oftentimes, is that the adequate profession to provide that form of safety and that service? Or are there other kinds of expertise that are better attuned to it than something that's really still shaped around urban, the, the pacification of urban space through crime control? You know, there's a, um, a good question in the chat there that I think, you know, um, it's a, can you speak a bit more about how community is defined in community policing? For example, would you think that Austin, Texas citizens petitioning to criminalize homeless encampments is an example of community policing? Well, I wouldn't want to define it, but what I want to, would want to do is to point out that we have to ask exactly that question. That oftentimes who and what the community is in community policing is, is the question you have to ask. So, I, so for example, in that, I don't know very much about that case, but oftentimes uh, the community, right? What stands in for the community is not everyone. Right. It's, it's the well-resourced and the people that can be at the meetings and the people who, 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 who make decisions about the police budget right? and, and city council stand in for the community where the unhoused, the marginalized, right. the, the currently incarcerated, right? The formerly incarcerated, uh, the, the, the otherwise mar marginalized people oftentimes are not thought of as the community, but as the external thing to be policed, right? And so I think we always have to think about when, we're, when, when the word community is used in these conversations, who is this really meaning here? And what is their role in it, in, in policing, right? Uh, is I think the... the why I think the work of some of the people that I was referencing are really helpful. Mm -hmm. And then it helps us 
pause enough to start asking that question in these situations. Yeah. I think I want to ask one more question and then um, we're kind of, uh, well, maybe we have time for a couple, but let's see. Here's one that I'm not, I'm not sure if this is in your bailiwick here, but um, the question from uh, one of our participants came, how do you mitigate training to, I guess, to not kill when using a gun? Have studies been done on shooting to halt or disarm? Sure, and so there's a there's a there's a massive industry for uh, now, uh, especially the last couple of years, in people who claiming that they could teach you how to how to do nonviolent, non-lethal policing, and so you could hire any number of high-priced consultants and trainers and seminars to, to say that they do it, and there's and there's also most of it there's no evidence that they can. Uh, there is some work going on about trying to kind of think about what kinds of factors lead to violent outcomes versus nonviolent outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, but even that, again, some of the terms get really tricky uh, in that, like, do we mean lethal when we say violent? Do it, are tasers violent? Right? Is being ejected from Liberty Square a violent act? when you have no place to go. Um, so what do we mean when we say non-violent? Oftentimes we mean non-lethal, uh, which is good, uh, but again, I could, maybe not ideal, um, would be what I would wanna say, I, for one. And two, there's also a, a, a parallel industry in what de-escalation, uh, uh, which I found I've yet to find a police officer that I think really understands what de-escalation means. <laughs> Unfortunately, more often, there was a, there was a police officer in Ann Arbor, actually, uh, who once described de-escalation as, we could use one level of force higher than what we're being presented with. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. if they're, so if they're doing this, in order to pacify the situation, we could do one extra in order to make sure it's pacified. And that's what de-escalation means. It, it, it meant like, we don't go three steps above, what we have to the appropriate use of force but given the situation. It might be the guidelines for what the legal limits of appropriate force are, but that's not de-escalation. Correct. Right? Yeah. Uh, and I found uh, you know, that that's a real hard thing to gra grapple with. Again, lots of people smarter than me are trying to, are trying to work on kind of, thinking about models for de-escalation, about how to implement them in police departments. Um, but it's, it's hard in part because again, police don't necessarily want to do it and people don't necessarily want police to do it. Like again, because of how we think about what the role of police is, well, what we think of what governance is and what we think police have to do in order for order, uh, they, they don't necessarily want police to de-escalate, right? Do we want the police officer to not chase in a car, even though they've seen a crime, right? Uh, or, or does that feel wrong to us? My sense is that, you know, there's not a consensus there. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just kind of thinking it in terms of some of the, the presentations we've had here earlier about, you know, uh, restorative justice as opposed to, you know, punitive justice and uh, mm -hmm. how over the last, 
you know, five years or so. I mean, it just seems like there's like, there's like, there are like people who think that if you're impoverished or you, you get to steal bread because your family needed to eat or whatever, you need to be punished and you need to suffer for that. Mm -hmm. And there are people who think, wow, that's a problem. How do we give bread to that person before he commits a crime, you know, or she commits a crime? Mm -hmm. and, and, um, it's all tangled up. I think it's, it's all tangled up. Yeah, you know. Um, um, well, we're we at the end of this, uh, at the end of our time here, and I have a few announcements that I need to make, but um, I've just been fascinated um, with the history you've presented and with some of the ideas that you've, you know, put forth here. And um, I thank you so much for- Thank you for having me. I'm glad it, glad you found it uh, interesting. I was worried, I was worried about it was too much or too, too fast, but- uh, I, I it, was great. I learned a lot. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening. We would like to thank current members of the League of Women Voters for your support. If you're not yet a member, consider joining the League to support the essential work of protecting the right of every citizen to vote check out our website, lwvwashtenaw.org for how to join. That's lwvwashtenaw.org. There you will find links to videos of this and many other presentations on topics important to every citizen. Stay safe, stay well, and stay informed and active in your government.